Good morning, everybody. Thanks. Good morning. Yeah, you're live. You're awake. Your ears work. The mic works. We're good. We're in good shape. I feel like after singing a song like that, uh, just the people of God proclaiming how good he is, I know that everybody in here has not had a great week. And so I know that there's been struggles. You guys have had sorrows. You guys have had uh, difficulties. You guys have had disappointments and sin and trouble and just name it. And yet we can come here together and we can sing about the goodness of God. So that is a victory in and of itself. Okay, as Trump talked about uh, earlier, we're going to be continuing in our study of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 2 today, verses 11, 12, and 13, three, three whole verses, which actually for us is quite a bit sometimes. So, And uh, we'll be continuing in chapter 2, but Paul has made a, a big break. He's really spent the first part of this book in the first chapter explaining who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, what he has done for us, praying for the Ephesians, uh, all the blessings that we have in Christ, which is just marvelous. If you don't know or not familiar with that, I encourage you to go back and read Ephesians 1, go back and listen to those sermons if you'd like. Incredibly rich passage there. And then for the past several weeks, we've been in the first uh, 10 verses of chapter 2, really explaining the gospel. It's just been the gospel, which always starts off as something bad, which is that we are dead in our transgressions and sins, separated from God that we'll talk about a little bit today. But there's this great thing that happened. God, because he is rich in his mercy and great in love for us, Christ came to save us and that we can, by grace, through faith in him, have eternal life. And not only that, but we have good works that we can now work because of what he's done. We are not only saved, but we are saved for a purpose, to a purpose. You and I have good work to do here on planet Earth. And that brings us into verse 11. And there's going to be a, there, there's a, a break here in his thought process, and he's going to be laying the groundwork for discussing the, the unity that we have in the body, which is going to be a huge theme throughout the whole rest of the book, of Ephesians. But in this passage here, 11 really through, through 22, he's going to be setting up uh, some of the differences that there were between the, the Jews and the Gentiles in the church at Ephesus, and uh, that Christ has brought those folks together. And then over the next two or three weeks, we'll be looking at uh, what those things mean as Paul kind of brings that discussion to a close through the end of chapter two. But it's going to be a theme throughout the book, because you'll see unity, right? Unity up there. Yeah, love, unity, identity. So this, this concept that we are one in the body of Christ is massive, massive, massive. And so we're going to be hitting it a lot in Ephesians, laying the groundwork for some of that today. So before we dive in, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can proclaim your goodness and not be lying to ourselves, that our goodness is not determined by our circumstances, but it is determined by your goodness that the goodness of God in the land of the living can be experienced by every believer, that we can know that you are good and that we can experience your goodness even in life's difficulties, even in the context of tragedy, even as we just suffer the slings and arrows of life, the attack of the enemy, the war of our flesh against us, the pressure of the world pushing us into its mold even as we suffer the effects of sin on people that we love, as we engage in a broken world, we can proclaim the goodness of God. And so we, we come to you today and we ask for your help as we look at this passage today. Help us to understand it. Take a moment um, 
as you just sit in your chair as we pray every week to pray for yourself to ask the Lord to teach you something. Ask him to teach you exactly what your heart and your mind need to learn from his word today. Just take a moment and ask him for his help. Then take a moment to pray for someone around you, maybe somebody you just met, maybe someone that you've been married to for a very long time, uh, and, and ask that the Lord would teach them what he wants them to know, not what you think they need to know or what you think they need to learn, but what the Lord and his providence and mercy wants to teach them. Ask for the Lord to impact them, to help them apply the word. Ask him to help transform them today. Lord, we come as always as we open your word with humility and, and awe. Your word is just perfect. And so we come to you to just confess our, our surrender to your authority through the word. Um, teach us. Help us to comprehend what it is that you want us to know. You've been teaching believers ever since Paul wrote this letter, Lord, and teaching them these things. Help us to learn those things and to apply those things to our lives. In Christ's risen name we pray. Amen. So here we go in uh, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So the word therefore in, uh, in verse 11, a, a kind of silly but way to, memorable way to do it is whenever there's a therefore, you ask what it's, what's it there for, and it always signifies a transition. There's something happened before it, and now because of that thing, Paul or whoever's writing is going to say some other things. So whenever there's a therefore, there's a big transition. And so Paul has just finished discussing this unimaginable concept of that we were dead in our sins and we've now been made alive in Christ in, in 2 through 10. Because of those things, because we were dead in our sins, because we've now been made alive with Christ, because we are his workmanship, his masterpieces, and he's given us great work to do and, and work in this life, because of those things, therefore, remember. So the word remember there is, is it's an imperative, it's a command. It's not, hey, I've got an idea. If you've got some time in your hands, it wants you to think back. No, it, it is, in the grammar, it is an imperative that is, is said from the speaker, and it assumes the absolute obedience of the listener. Remember, because of what Christ has done, because of who you now are, remember. Remember what? That formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. So the, the church in Ephesus uh, was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. There's only two groups for the Jew. There is the Jew who is under the law, and either you were either born Jewish and you were under the law of Moses, or you uh, were, were, were proselytized and brought in under the, the law, like Ruth, who was a Moabitess, came in, not born a Jew, became a Jew, and then you're a Jew. Or you're a Gentile. There's only two groups. There's Jews and not Jews. It doesn't matter if you are uh, if you were from Scythian or Babylonian or Egyptian or from Kansas. It doesn't matter. If you're not a Jew, 
then you're a Gentile. So for the church in Ephesus, there was a mix of those people. Now, Paul, what he did, his habit was to go in and he would preach the gospel first in a synagogue to the Jews, and then he would go and he would preach to the Gentiles. So on his first trip to Ephesus, he goes and he, and he, he speaks to the Jews and comes back, and there's a group of believers there. And then he stays there for two years, like we've talked about in his teaching. And the majority of the Ephesian church was made up of Gentiles. So the problem with that is that there's a big difference between Jew and Gentile, in particular in the mind of the, of the Jewish believer. And it had caused a whole lot of issues in the early church. So if you go back to the book of Acts, you remember that... Um, it all starts with, these, with the Jewish people. They're there, and in, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon those who had come back for the Passover. They were Jews, and then the gospel goes out, and Stephen gets stoned, and, and Saul gets saved and becomes Paul. And then you have, in, uh, in chapter 11 of Acts, there's something weird is going on. They find out that these Gentiles are coming to faith. And so Peter has this vision. He's up on this uh, he's at Cornelius' house, he's up on the roof, and God gives him this vision. And then he goes and he sees the Holy Spirit come upon these Gentiles. And he goes and meets with the rest of the leadership there, and they say, well, what's going on? And at the end of, uh, of that passage in, in Acts 11, remember they say something that's very, very peculiar. That to us seems weird if we think about someone coming to faith in Jesus now. <clears throat> but they say, in 11:18, it says, when they heard this, uh, let's say it at verse uh, 16. Then I remembered what, uh, 15. I began to speak, and the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us in the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, gave them, Gentiles, the same gift as he gave us, Jews, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. See, for them it was shocking that God would give the promises of God through not the Jews. See, because for them, they had the covenants, they had all these things, they were God's chosen people, and the Messiah was Jewish, and all the promises were going to come through the Jews. But this great, giant mystery is that the gospel, salvation, the Messiah, was for everybody. So when he says those Gentiles by birth who are called uncircumcised, your Bible probably has it in quotes by those who call themselves the circumcision. The circumcision is the Jews, the uncircumcised are the Gentiles. These are names that they would have called each other. Like they would have put each other into groups. The Jews would have been very, very clear that this is a bunch of uncircumcised Gentiles. That was not a compliment for the Jew in this time. I don't guess it would be a compliment now either. I don't know if it would hurt your feelings if someone came up and said that to you, but maybe it would. <clears throat> but then he goes on to say this. So we've got this differentiation between Jew and Gentile. That had been settled theologically in Acts chapter 15. They had this Jerusalem council, and they come up and they say, okay, that's it. It's the same for everybody. You, you basically receive Christ by faith. If you were interested to, go, interested to go back in there and look, go for it. Paul writes a lot about it. It was a large part of his ministry because he was a missionary to the Gentiles. Most of Galatians has written about that topic because a group had come in called the Judaizers who said this. They said, you had to, in order to become a Christian, you had to first become Jewish, get circumcised, follow the law of Moses, and then through that, you could then become a believer. Well, that's wrong. 
Because if that's true, then you're not saved by grace through faith. You're saved by becoming Jewish and then doing Jewish things and then obeying the law and then accepting Christ. But that's not salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith and it's a gift. Notice that phrase at the end of that uh, verse that says, that done in the body by the hands of men. So why would Paul make that differentiation? We're going to run down a bit of a rabbit trail here, starting in Romans 2, about this difference between a, a, a physical circumcision and then the spiritual circumcision, which is what Paul, or excuse me, what the Lord is all about anyway. So you're welcome to read with me. We're going to be in Romans chapter 2, and then we're going to jump into Philippians, then into Colossians 2. But I'll tell you where we're going to be before we get there. Right now we're in Romans 2, verse 25. Okay, so Paul is in Romans, of course, he's explained this enormous, beautiful passage about the gospel, that it's for everyone. Then he's talking about uh, the Jews in chapter 2 and their relationship to the law. So in 225 it says this, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, they will not be regarded as though, or will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? So he's like, the, the act of circumcision is not what is important. It's that you obey the law. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you. Even though you, uh, who have the written code and, and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Right? So you got these Jews who were circumcised that weren't obeying the law. They weren't obeying what God had said to do. And they still weren't as they rejected the Messiah. In verse 28, a man who is not a Jew, if he is only one outwardly, or excuse me, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So you have this idea of the point all along was that circumcision was always a sign of those who were already under the covenant. Just like, and we're going to get into this in a minute, baptism is a sign of believers. The Lord's Supper is, the, is a symbol, a sign that points to a, 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 a spiritual reality. Circumcision for the Jew was an external physical reality that pointed to a spiritual reality that they had obeyed the law in their heart. God always wants the heart. Anything ever in any religion that ever points to outward activity as what pleases God is always false. It's always legalism. God wants your heart. It's been like that from the beginning. David was a man after God's own laws. No, after God's own heart. God wants the heart because if he has your heart, he's got everything. Okay, so on to Philippians chapter 3. So 3, yes, 3. So Philippians 3 verse, probably starting verse 1. After, uh, after Ephesians. Just go back to Ephesians and uh, we'll be there. Philippians 3. So Paul is going to be getting a little bit more detail with some of these things. <clears throat> it says, finally, my brothers, this is 3.1, Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Watch out for those dogs. So not good guys. Those men who do evil, what are they doing? Those mutilators of the flesh, okay? Getting a bit graphic here. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the 
flesh. So the, back, in, back in Ephesians, when he says that done by the flesh, that done in the body by the hands of men, the, the grammar of the Greek there is that done in the flesh by the flesh. Circumcision is a physical act done by physical people. It has no spiritual significance whatsoever unless it's actually connected to an actual spiritual reality. Just like if you say, I want to get baptized, and I say, are you saved? And you're like, no, I can go in there and dunk you in the horse tank, although today would be really nippy. But if I dunk you in the horse tank, it doesn't do anything. Baptism doesn't save you. Grace through faith is what saves you. Grace through faith and the finished work of Christ on the cross is what saves a sinner. It is not baptism. So Philippians, he's explaining to them, listen, it is not circumcision that does anything for you. That's just a sign of the spiritual reality. And then, of course, if you keep reading, it says, if anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have all these. And so Paul's saying, look, if anybody had reason to be confident in the flesh and human accomplishments, it's me. Remember what he says. He lists all these accomplishments, and he says what? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That is, his, that is the spiritual reality that Paul is aiming for. Okay, so finally, go to Colossians chapter 2 which is the next book over, Colossians 2, and we'll be in verse 08 through somewhere. So, Colossians 2, 8. All these books are magnificent. If you're not just reading the Bible on a regular basis, please do. Uh, we need to hear this stuff over and over and over and over and over again until we go see Jesus and we, we can just talk with him about it. But until then, I need a daily dose of the word. So he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies which depend on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Great, great verse to memorize. The idea being, right, that you have these uh, human regulations, and then, but there is a, a life that we have in Christ. That is what we have to base our life on. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Okay, in verse 11. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised. And look at this. In the putting off of the sinful nature. Circumcision is removal of something. What is being removed in Christ? The sinful nature. Now it says, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men. Do you see this? Circumcision is this physical act done by physical people on a physical body. And it has a physical significance. He is saying, Christ, and as you look back in Romans, the Spirit is the one who circumcises our heart to remove from us the sinful nature. It says, once again, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by who? Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, once again this symbol, and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. Does that sound familiar? When you were dead in your transgressions with sin, God made you alive in Christ Jesus. This is what he's just told the Ephesians in chapter 2. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code and its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So Paul is pointing to this other reality, this concept of a spiritual circumcision, a removal of something as a symbol, as a sign of what God has done. And as you follow that thread through these other things that Paul has written, it gives us this picture of this circumcision of the heart, so to speak, that he has done surgery on us and that he has removed 
this, our sinful nature's control over us. It may be news to you that you and I, as believers, are no longer absolutely subject to the flesh. Do you realize that? You are not required to sin. You're not. Neither am I. Now, do I still sin every day? Yep. Haven't had a day that I don't. At least not that I remember. Maybe if I was in a coma or something. Uh, I've never been in a coma, thankfully, but I'm sure in there I'd probably find a way to sin anyway. But the reason I sin is not because I'm incapable of walking by faith. It's because I choose not to trust the Lord. It's because I choose what is comfortable, what is known, and what gives me control. And this picture of circumcision is really, it's, it is a very intentional and very graphic picture. It is an act that is, especially in the ancient world, irreversible. Okay? The picture that we're given is that when we, are, when we put our faith in Christ, the sinful nature is circumcised, removed from us, and that we now have a new nature. So when he says that those who were, back, back to Ephesians chapter 2, and it says those circumcised, uncircumcised by those called the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. So he's emphasizing, once again, this thing that separates all of you, that separates Jew from Gentile, like a categorical, a categorical separation. That is just something done by people to people in the physical realm. It gets trumped by something else. Okay, y'all with me? There's a lot of uh, verses. Does it make sense? There's this theme that goes through, especially Paul's writings, and Paul had to be very good at explaining this because the early church and the church today is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews had a really, really hard time of conceptualizing how in the world are these Gentiles in the same family that we are. Now in verse 12, once again, remember, imperative, that at the same time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners and sit to the covenants of the promise without hope, without God in the world. So it's the same thing that Paul has done in chapter 2 earlier. Remember, he starts off chapter 2, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is who you were. So he was reminding these guys, remember at that time that that is who you were. And what is it? Separate from Christ. So um, the, the root word there for separate is like the space between spaces. It's like a place where nothing is, like a chasm. We define a chasm because we as humans have to have definitions for things. But a chasm is just where something isn't, right? Like a hole. Like you can't be in a chasm. I guess you can fall through a chasm. But if you're on a bridge in a chasm, you're not in the chasm, you're on a bridge. But this idea of it is a space where something isn't. So that at that time, before Christ, we were separate. We were empty from him. Separated from him. A place where we where there isn't a Christ, that is where we were, where he is not. Because we were separate from him, we were excluded from citizenship. So the word excluded there means to be out of, out of belonging, like you don't belong here. Um, I think everybody has probably felt like that at some point, like you just don't belong. Have you ever been in like, I don't know, a circumstance, it could be, it could be getting picked last for a kickball team, which happened to me all the time because my athletic prowess didn't peak until ever. And so... I, uh, yeah, I was, I was in marching band. So, you know, we uh, can march with the best of them. But that's not a sport, by the way, if anybody claims it to be. But 
You get picked last for the kickball team, you feel like you don't belong. They're like, oh, gosh, I have to pick this kid because he's here, and if we don't pick him, then the teacher will get mad at us. And so, all right, Brandon, you can kick on the kickball team. So not belonging feels awful, and every human has experienced it. Every human is, you probably dressed the wrong way for the wrong occasion. You were dressed up too much or dressed down too little. You were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I go through a whole bunch of circumstances where I just don't feel like you belong. Um, I actually went, when I was in seminary, I went to, uh, they had this graduation thing. And I was not super plugged in on campus because I was, uh, I had a job working at a church. And I was running a college ministry. We lived 30 miles away. So I wasn't involved with all those things. So I was, I was just back and forth all the time. And uh, there was something I heard about. I was supposed to go to this church. It was, I can't remember which church, some important church in Dallas. Go to this church and uh, this thing for graduating people. So I said, go, oh, great, I'll go. Well, I didn't get a memo or I missed a memo or whatever. And uh, we were supposed to go in like the, our cap and gown and go and, and uh, you go to this cap and gown thing and you wear your regalia or whatever and you go and you sit in this church and they have this service where they like bless the seminary graduates. Sounds really cool. Well, I show up. I don't have my cap and gown or my things that go on the stuff. I didn't go in there and sit with everybody because I'm not dressed for the occasion, right? I'm not going to just stand there and be like, bless all the guys and then you in the back. It doesn't work that way. So I just kind of stood outside the sanctuary while they did the service and I just left halfway through. Why? Man, I didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't know. And I was just driving away, it like crushed my soul. Why? Because not belonging is awful. Not feeling like you're supposed to be there, or even worse, that you're supposed to be there, and you didn't have this little bit of information, and that if you would have had, you would have belonged. Man, it's crushing. Well, the Gentiles did not belong. It says they were excluded from the citizenship. Yours may say the commonwealth. It's this idea of being a citizen, being a commonwealth, you're part of a people, Right? Like to be a citizen of the United States means something. To be a citizen of a country, you're excluded from the others. And they were excluded from citizenship in Israel. It meant something. To the Jew, to be an Israelite was everything about their identity. And the Gentiles were separate. They, were, um, they didn't belong to Israel. They were also, um, they were foreigners, you might say strangers to the covenants of promise. If it's plural in covenants, it means you have this idea that God has had many, many covenants throughout the Bible. Like he has a covenant with Adam and Eve, he has a covenant with Noah, he has this covenant with Abraham, which is the, the covenant that we're talking about. And then there was finally, there was a covenant with Moses, he has a covenant with David, uh, with David, with David yes, the Davidic covenant. And then they're all pointing to this new covenant that we're under, this new testament that we're under, the covenant of grace that we are brought into relationship with God by grace through faith. And we're under this beautiful covenant of grace. All the covenants point to that. And they were foreigners or strangers to those covenants. They didn't know. Have you ever been in a foreign country where, well, there's a word, for, it's foreign for a reason. So in Spanish, the word is extranjero. It also the word for weird, right? Extraño means weird. And so uh, extranjero, it's like a weirdo. That's what it means. And it's someone who doesn't even fit in. Like even the word that we use like as a joke, gringo, uh, it comes from a Spanish word that, that meant that people who don't speak Spanish well. And so they know when you're a foreigner there, they know. They know. It doesn't matter if you're necessarily because you're white, but you walk different, you talk different, you don't know the customs, you don't know the language, you don't know the currency, you don't know where to go to get help, you don't know where to go if you're, you don't know anything. 
You're just a foreigner. And they were foreigners to what? The covenants of promise. What do the covenants of promise mean to us? They're our hope. They're what we rest our identity in. They're everything to us. We don't necessarily think about it that way, but the covenants are God's showing us, I can be trusted. And for the Gentile, they were total strangers to that. They had no idea. And so because of that, they are hopeless or without hope. They were hopeless. Have you ever actually felt truly, genuinely, as a believer, 100% hopeless? The only way that the believer ever is truly hopeless is because we forget who saved us. We forget who God is. It's like the disciples when they're on the boat and it's getting swamped with water and Jesus is sleeping under the thing. Their only thought is we're all going to drown. Jesus is taking a nap. Come on do something. Of course, he gets up. He says, storm, be quiet. And then he tells the Jews, he tells the disciples, I mean, who are also Jews, he tells them, oh, ye of little faith. Why did you wake me up from my nap? <laughs> Everything's fine. I'm on the boat. We forget. And that was their state. They were without hope. And then this last one is the worst, without God in the world. We talked a couple weeks ago about this idea of separation from God, you know, that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. Really, to be, to be dead is to be separated from life. Separation from God is the worst thing that can happen to humanity. Why? Because we're created in his image. So to be separated from him is to be separated from he from whom we get ourself. From where I get my identity, the concept of what it means to be human. You realize that all of that comes from God? The concept that a human has inherent and intrinsic value is from the Bible. It's from Genesis. He created every male and female in his image. Everybody has inherent and irrevocable value because God gives it to them. And so to be separated from God is to be separated from your inherent value as a human deeply, and, and in every category of my being, awful. As awful and as terrible as humanity can be is to be separated from God. And that, that truly is hell. I don't know what goes on in hell exactly. The Bible doesn't paint it in a good light. It's not like you're sitting there sipping cocktails, I don't think. It's awful because apart from God is only evil. God is only good and always good all of the time. So to be separated from God is to be separated from even the hope of the application of his goodness. It is utter and complete disaster. And that was who the Gentiles were. And Paul is telling them, he's telling believers, remember who you were. Now look at verse 13. But now... Remember that formerly, it's in the past, right? Remember that at that time, in the past. But what about now? What about today? In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought where? Near. How? Through the blood of Christ. For us is a picture of this brought through the blood, like it's, we sort of, we, if you've been, if you've grown up in church, you hear this language all the time, the blood of Jesus, and that, it's graphic. 
through the, the death of Christ, that's how we're able to be brought near. It's not just because God was decided to be happy with us or because we were all of a sudden good enough or maybe just not quite so bad enough that God's like, okay, you're now officially not utterly horrible, so now you can, I'll bring you near. No. We were dead, enemies of God, absolutely, unbelievably distant, far from him, without hope, without God, but Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and then not only did he do that, but he brought us near. The picture really is that of the shepherd going out and finding the lost sheep. You remember that story in Luke chapter 15? The, the shepherd, he has the sheep right there, and he leaves them there, and he goes out to find the lost sheep, and what does he do with them? Does he go back and he's like, oh, you dumb sheep, and kicks the sheep off a cliff? No. Remember it says he picks him up and he puts the sheep on his shoulders and he brings that sheep home. When Christ saves a sinner, he is bringing them home. If you are listening to my voice today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you need to come home and only Jesus can bring you there. He will put you on his shoulders and he will bring you home and he will keep you there, and he will finally bring all of us home to glory. Our salvation begins with Christ putting us on his shoulders, and it ends in the same place, because it is by his blood that we were brought near. So what do we do with all this? Um, the next couple of weeks, we'll be expanding into what this means, there, I mean, don't miss it. I want to play it up or whatever, but there is more in the next two weeks that have to do with where we are as a culture and a society than it's just inconceivable. The difference between the Jew and the Gentile for us today was incredibly hard for us to conceive of. It was, it was a racial, it was a linguistic, uh, linguistic, socioeconomic, it was geographical. In every way that people can be different, they were different. And yet Paul is telling them and explaining to them, God has now made you one. So one, um, it is good to take time to focus on who you are now, not who you were. It's good to remember who you were, okay? They are no longer separate from Christ. I am no longer excluded from citizenship in Israel. I am no longer foreigners to the covenant. I'm no longer without hope, and I'm no longer without God in the world. I am now in Christ. That is who I am. So we need to spend most of our time focused on who we are in Christ now, not who we were before him. You can use that. It was talked about in a minute. But if you spend all your time thinking about who you were, you're not going to live out who you're supposed to be now, which is a redeemed, saved person who has now been brought near and as we read in the first couple chapter uh, first couple verses above this we're God's workmanship you as a believer are his masterpiece he's created you in Christ Jesus and has given you good work to do if you're looking backwards all the time you won't be able to do those things so focus on who you are now not who you were it's good to remember but you can't stay there like verse 12 does not end the chapter right Paul's not like uh, without hope, without God in the world, see ya. I'll send Tychicus with a letter. Uh, I'll see you. No, he has a whole bunch more stuff to write, so keep reading. Number two, remembering who you were has a benefit so that you can um, love and have compassion toward those who are separate from Christ, uh, the separated, the excluded, 
the, um, the foreigner, the stranger, the hopeless, and the godless. In the church, we use atheist as like a negative term. And of course, being an atheist is dumb, but we use it sort of as this, oh, oh well, he's an atheist. Oh, of course he is. Yes, he's an atheist. So Excuse me. You were too at one point. Even if you grew up in church, you're like, I can't remember a time when I wasn't a Christian. There was. There was a time when you were as dead in your sin as they were. You may not remember it, and that's only God's mercy that allows that. It's only God's mercy that I don't, I don't remember the date of my salvation. If you get saved after like 30, you remember the day. Because you remember as an adult what it feels like to be separated from God. If you are in here and you came to faith as an adult, man, you remember. You remember. And folks that get saved as adults, they don't, they don't turn back, man. They're like crazy for Jesus. Because they know cognitively as an adult what it feels like to be separated from the goodness of God. And they know the flip side, what it feels like to be brought near to Jesus. What about the excluded and the stranger? You know, we have a lot of foreigners in our city. We have an opportunity to minister to an Afghani family. We have spirit ministries. There's also people who are just, just moved here. They moved from wherever. There are people who you are engaged with, who you rub shoulders with in the world today who are foreigners and strangers. You know, if you never lived in Oklahoma, maybe you lived up somewhere where there's not tornadoes in April. It's really scary. And in May... Watch out. You're like, what does weather aware mean? Does that mean I'm supposed to be like paying attention to the weather? No, it means like be prepared to not die. Like get in a hole in the ground and stay alive. That's what weather aware means. It means giant hailstones and tornadoes and winds that rip houses from the ground. If you're not from here, you don't know. You could actually, this is really practical, not super spiritual. There's someone who's from Oklahoma, that you, not from Oklahoma, who comes here in May. Would you just kind of pull them alongside and say, hey, when it says weather aware, just... Here's a weather app. Here's what I use. Call me if you get scared. I'll tell you what to do. If you don't have a storm shelter, I'm sorry. So, you know, <laughs> find the people in your life who are foreigners or strangers and help them feel at home. That may mean bringing them into your home, right? It may mean bringing someone who's from another country into your home. It may mean someone who's from another place. It may mean someone who's foreign to the gospel. It may mean bringing a lost person into your home. I mean, heaven forbid that Christian homes be the places where lost people come to find Jesus. We giggle at that, but do we do it? How many lost people have you had in your house this week, this month, this year? Why not? Were you not lost? Have you forgotten? Will you remember what it feels like to be lost and then see some atheist out there and say, Lord, help me teach him your love, not argue him into the kingdom. Do not do that. It, no one has ever been argued into the kingdom. That's the work of the Spirit. Are you the Holy Spirit? No. So don't argue someone into the kingdom. Love them there by telling them the truth of the gospel. Bring the lost and the broken and the wayward and the separated into your home. Bring them into your prayer life. Bring them into your life group. And there, let Christ show them who he is. So remember who you were so that you can bring the separated, the excluded, the homeless, the hopeless, the godless into your home. Finally, Christ has brought us near to himself. So, if you remember from our study of Hebrews, it's this really, really beautiful, uh, mm, 
word picture, I guess, of this idea of the throne of the temple that was so exclusive, right? Only the high priest could come into the Holy of Holies. But now, we as believers have access to this holy place. We have access to the throne of grace now. So my question to you is, if you've ever felt far from God, and I think everybody has, I know I've felt very far from God before, what do you do? Well, that's not a new problem, feeling far from God. You can read uh, lots of Psalms, like Psalm, we're going to read in Psalm 72, but Psalm 73 is really about feeling far from God. Where am I here? I lost my place. Here, 21. Um, so this idea of being near to the Lord, we're actually in Psalm 73, I wrote that down wrong, 73, 21. So Psalm 73 starts out badly. Um, it's a psalm of Asaph, that as for me, my feet had almost slipped. The arrogant, they have no struggles. He's looking at all the people in the world who are thriving without God. Why is that? It's super unfair. And in Psalm 72, excuse me, 73, 21, he says this. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you and you hold me by my right hand. What is the picture there? You see these parents walking in the hallway with a little four-year-old? Walking along. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. <laughs> so great. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. It is good for us to be near to the Lord. And if you feel far from him, what do you do? Well, James is really clear. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Not because he's far, but because he waits for us to turn to him. We have access, like Hebrews says, to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. You don't have, you're not outside the fortress and have to like crawl through the briars and swim across the moat and climb up the wall and then fight your way into the throne room. You're already there. You're a child of the king. You can just run around in the throne room. And when you need help, you just turn and say, Abba, Father, help me in my time of need. It is not complicated. It's just submitting to him. And like James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Because Christ has brought us near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, oh goodness, just for drawing us near to you, and that to be near you is to be overwhelmed with your goodness, to be near you is to our good, that you are good and everything that you do is good. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who we were and for reminding us of where we were, separated from you. And yet, through the blood of Jesus, we have been brought near we now have a new identity, 
and that is who we are in Christ. Who Brandon was is not as important as who Brandon is now in Christ. If you're listening to my voice right now, who you are now is more important than who you were. It is in Christ that you have the fullness of life, everlasting life, and abundant life. It may be that you right now don't feel close to God or that you feel far from him. If you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus, do that right now. Confess your sin to him. Turn from it. Turn away from your sin and turn to him. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead and that I know that if I trust in you to save me, that you'll save me. If you're a believer right now and you feel like you're far from the Lord or that he's far from you, let the truth of the word speak to you that he is not far from you. He has brought you near. You need only to turn and remember who is there, to submit to him, to receive his love and his mercy and his grace and to let him care for you because he loves you. So Lord, as we bring all these heavy things to you, I ask that you would help us remember, but help us not to stay there, to help us walk out in the newness of life that you have won for us. And help us go out, Lord Jesus, and live as crazy people who are overwhelmingly excited to talk to the lost about Jesus to bring in the broken and the stranger and the foreigner and the weirdo and the person who feels left out, the person who doesn't belong. Give us your heart for them. And may we be a whole church full of people who love people like you do. In your risen name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together as we sing this final song. And... Um... Let the truth that's been spoken to us soak into our hearts. Yeah. Uh-huh.
Jesus, you're the king upon the throne. Thank you for the way you always love me. Now I get to love you in return. Now I get to love you in return. I get really passionate about Jesus and the gospel and loving people well. God loves you so inconceivably much. And we get to respond to his love, how? By loving him first and by then loving other people. So go out there and do it. If you don't know how to invite your neighbor to a chili cook-off, I'll give you some words. Hey, we're having a chili cook-off at my church at five. You want to come? Just do that. That's, that's why we have these things. It's not to give out a trophy. Like, that's fun. We know all that, right? Super fun. Make your chili competition. Yay, have some fun. We do that thing to give you an avenue to invite someone who's never been to church to a church. They can eat chili, and we're not going to beat them up with the gospel. We're just going to love them. You get the non-Jesus people with the Jesus people, cool things happen. That's what that's for. So go in peace.